Yo, I just want to make people feel good, man. Like, <laughs> it's crazy. You know, the best I've ever felt is in church or reading the Bible, but I've gotten just as much out of listening to other people's stories. There's a testimony in people's stories, man. And that within itself is a word. This is The Word Podcast with Joshua the Wordsmith. and sisters out there, I hope you are enjoying Black History Month and enjoying Black History Month specifically here on the Word Podcast with me, Joshua the Wordsmith. This has been such an amazing experience and we are already at our final installment for 2021 of our little known Black History episodes. And I just hope that you are enjoying, that you are learning, that you are researching all of these amazing contributors to Black History. Uh, I know that I am. And um, I just wanted to share with you that this has just been such a great experience. And I hope that you enjoy the rest of today's episode, as well as checking out our full length episodes during the week and as well as the little episodes to come as always like favorite subscribe do whatever you need to do to listen to this podcast go back and listen to the other black history month um, features that we had we had some amazing contributors to black history um, men and women um, just of of great renown Um, and without further ado let's get into today's episode Our first contributor to Black history today is none other than Miss Claudette Coven. Claudette was the original Rosa Parks, but for many years didn't get the credit she deserves because of her darker skin tone and becoming a teenage mother. Coven was born on September 5, 1939. Her parents were not able to financially support Claudette, so she was adopted by Mary Ann and Q.P. Coven other family members of hers. She grew up in a poor black neighborhood of Montgomery, Alabama. Colvin was a student at the segregated Booker T. Washington High School. She, like many other blacks at the time, relied on the city buses to get to and from school because her parents did not own a car. The majority of the customers of the bus system were African American, but they were discriminated against. Uh, by custom of the segregated seating. Colvin was a member of the NAACP Youth Council, where she formed a close relationship with her mentor, Rosa Parks, and had been learning all about the civil rights movement, both there and in school. On March 2, 1955, she was returning home from school and sat in the colored section, about two seats away from an emergency exit in the Capitol Heights bus. If the bus became crowded, so crowded that all the white seats in the front of the bus were filled until white people were standing, any African Americans who were supposed to get up from nearby seats to make room for whites 
move further into the back and stand in the aisle if there were no seats in that section. When a white woman got on the bus, she was left standing in the front. The bus driver at the time commanded Colvin and three other black women in her row to get up and move to the back. The other three women moved, but another pregnant woman, Ruth Hamilton, got on the bus and sat next to Colvin. The driver looked at them in his mirror and asked them both to get up. Ruth Hamilton said she was not going to get up and that she had paid her fare and that she was didn't feel like standing. So, I, so Claudette echoed that sentiment and told him that she wasn't going to get up either. And he said, if you're not going to get up, I will get a policeman. The police arrived and convinced a black man sitting behind the two women to move so that Mrs. Hamilton could move back. But Colvin still refused to move. She was forcibly removed from the bus and arrested by two policemen. This occurred nine months before the more widely known incident in which Rosa Parks, secretary of the local chapter of the NAACP, helped spark the 1955 Montgomery bus boycott. Colvin not only got to meet and work with Rosa Parks prior to the famed incident. Colvin's mother later said, My mother told me to be quiet about what I did. She told me to let Rosa be the one. White people aren't going to bother her. They like Rosa. Colvin did not receive the same attention as Parks for a number of reasons. They felt like she did not have good hair. She was not fair-skinned. She was the teenager, and she got pregnant. The leaders of the civil rights movement tried to keep appearances and make the most appealing to protesters be the most seen. Bottom line, Rosa Parks was light-skinned and would appeal to more white folks. Colvin was one of five plaintiffs in the first federal court case filed by civil rights attorney Fred Gray on February 1st, 1956, as Bauer v. Gale, to challenge bus segregation in the city. The case went to the United States Supreme Court on appeal by the state. It upheld the district's court ruling on November 13, 1956. One month later, the Supreme Court affirmed the order to Montgomery and the state of Alabama to end the bus segregation. The Montgomery bus boycott was then called off. For many years, Montgomery's black leaders did not publicize Colvin's pioneering effort. She was an unmarried teenager at the time and was reportedly impregnated by a married man. Still, History Today knows the truth and recognizes her bravery, as many others did prior to Rosa Parks' famed incident. Today, Colvin is 81 years of age and holds no resentment towards her, the late, late mentor, wrote Miss Rosa Parks, by saying, back then, we all had a role to play in the right fight for civil rights, and we got there by any means necessary. You sure did, Claudette, and we salute you.
next for contributors to Black History, we have Mr. Fritz Pollard. Fritz Pollard was a pioneer in the NFL by becoming the first black coach of an NFL team. Pollard attended Albert Jean Lane Mutual Training High School in Chicago, also known as Lane Tech, where he played football, baseball, and ran track. He then went to Brown University, majoring in chemistry. Pollard played, played football halfback on the Brown football team, which went to the 1916 Rose Bowl. He was the first black football player at Brown. He became the first black running back to be named to Walter Camp's All-America team. He later played pro football with the Akron Pros, the team he would lead to the NFL championship in 1920. In 1921, he became the co-coach of the Akron Pros while still maintaining his roster position as a running back. He also played for the Milwaukee Badgers, Hammond Pros, and other teams. Some sources indicate that Pollard also served as co-coach of the Milwaukee Badgers with Garrett for a part of the 1922 season. He also coached the Gilburn Cottonmouths, a non-NFL team, in 1923 and 1924. He served as head coach for the Hanman Pros. Pollard also coached Lincoln University's football team during the 1918-1920 seasons. Pollard later criticized the Lincoln's administration, saying they had hampered his ability to be a coach and refused to provide adequate level of travel accommodations for the team. Prior to the Hampton game, the team was compelled to go to Hampton by boat, sleeping on the decks and under portholes, he told a reporter. No cabins were provided, nor were they given a place to sleep after reaching Hampton. They lost the game, though lack of rest. He also blamed the school for not providing proper equipment. I myself paid $200 out of pocket for football shoes for the team. He missed the 1920 Howard game. And he says because Lincoln's salary was so low that he was compelled to argument with the pay for Macri. He was the first African-American head coach in the National Football League. Pollard and Bobby Marshall were the two first African-American players in the NFL in 1920. Football pioneer Walter Kemp also called Pollard one of the greatest runners these eyes have ever seen. Pollard, along with all nine players that were black in the NFL at the time, were removed from the league at the end of the 1926 season, never to return again. He spent some time organizing all black barnstorming teams, including the Chicago Blackhawks in 1928 and the Harlem Brown Bombers in the 1930s. In the 1930s, Pollard founded his own professional football team, the Brown Bombers. The Depression ended the Brown Bombers' run in 1938, and Pollard went into other virtues, 
that he had interest in, including a talent agency, tax consulting, and film and music production. He produced Rockin' the Blues in the 1956, which included performers such as Connie Carroll, The Harper Turns, The Five Miller Sisters, etc. Puller also published the New York Independent News from 1935 to 1942, proportionally and proudly known as the first Black-owned tabloid in New York City. Fritz Poland soon died at the age of 92 on May 11, 1986. A pioneer in football, the first Black coach of an NFL team, we salute you. Now we get to cover Victor J. Glover. Commander Victor J. Glover has us all shooting for the stars. Glover grew up in Pomona, California and graduated Ontario High School, California in 1994, where he was the quarterback and running back for the Jaguars. He was awarded Athlete of the Year in 1994. He attended California Polytech State University on a wrestling scholarship and received his Bachelor of Science degree in General Engineering in 1999. Glover is also a member of 1996's Phi Beta Sigma fraternity. In college, Glover has obtained at least three Masters of Science degrees in his lifetime. Glover joined the U.S. Navy, completing advanced flight training in 2001. With the Marine Fleet Replacement Squadron, in 2003, he was assigned to Street Fighter Squadron 34, stationed in Virginia, and embarked on the final deployment of the USS John F. Kennedy in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. After attending the Air Force Test Pilot School in 2007, he was designated a test pilot, serving in California. In 2011, he served as a department head in the Strike Fighter Squadron 195, stationed at Naval Air Facility in Japan, and embarked on the USS George Washington. Glover's call sign is Ike a given name to him by one of his commanding officers, standing for, I know everything. He has accumulated 3,000 flight hours and more than 40 aircrafts and over 400 carriers uh, uh, landings 
and 24 combat missions for the United States Navy. In 2012, he served as a legislative fellow working on the personal staff of John McCain. It was during this time that he was selected for the 2013 NASA Astronaut Group. Glover was introduced as one of the Astronaut Group's 21 team in 2013, completing training in 2015. In August 2018, Glover was introduced to a commercial crew of astronauts assigned to fly on the first operational flight and the second crewed flight overall of SpaceX's Crew Dragon. As a part of that mission, he will be the crew member on the ISS Expeditions 64 and 65. Glover is the first African-American ISS Expedition crew member to live on the International Space Station. Not only visit the International Space Station for a short stay on the space shuttle and an International Space Station assembly astronaut. Mr. Glover's achievement is noticeable for NASA, which has worked to spotlight hidden figures in its history, but has also far sent only 14 black Americans to space out of a total of more than 300 NASA astronauts. He will not be the first black astronaut aboard the space station, but those who preceded him from NASA were members of the space shuttle crews during the space station's construction and only made brief stays on the outpost. He is the first to have an extended stay aboard the space station. Glover is only 44 years of age and plans to be making more extended trips into space soon. an event in black history, an event that's uh, often compared to Emmett Till and Trayvon Martin. This is the case of the tragic death of George Steiny. <clears throat> in 1944, George Steiny lived in Alkaloo, South Carolina with his family. George Steiny's father worked in the town sawmill and the family resided in company housing. Alkaloo was a small working class mill town where white and black neighbors were separated and segregated quite literally by railroad tracks. The town was a typical of Southern towns. Um, at the time it was given segregated schools and segregated churches for white and black residents and there was limited interaction between them. The bodies of Betty June and Mary Emma were found in a ditch on March 23rd, 1944. 
after failing to return home from the night before. The bodies were discovered on the African-American side of Alkalu. Steiny's father helped in the search. The girls had been beaten with a weapon, variously reported as a piece of blunt metal or a railroad spike. The girls were last seen riding their bicycles looking for flowers. As they passed the Steiny's property, they asked Steiny and his sister if they knew where any Mayplops were, a local name for passion flowers. According to her, his sister, she was with Snarney at the time that the police later established for the murders. According to an article reported by The Wire Services, on March 24, 1944, and published widely with the mistake of the boy's name preserved, the sheriff denounced the arrest of George and stated that the boy had confessed and led officers to a hidden piece of iron. Blunt force trauma was assumed to be the cause of death for the young girls. Starney's arresting officer, a Cardinal County deputy, who stated, I arrested the boy by the name of George Steiny. He then made a confession and told me where to find the piece of iron, about 15 inches, where he said he put it in a ditch about six feet from the bicycle. Please note that no confession was statement was signed by Steiny or is known to even exist. The 14-year-old later claimed that the arresting officers starved him and then bribed him with food in order to confess. There was no written record of Steiny's confession apart from the deputy Newman's statement. Other than the testimony of three officers, a trial of prosecutors called three witnesses. Reverend Francis Batner, who discovered the bodies of the two girls, and the two doctors who performed the uh, post-mortem examination. Conflicting confessions were reported and have been offered by the prosecution. The courts allowed discussion of the possibility of rape, although the medical examiner report had no evidence to support this. Steiny's counsel did not call any witnesses. Didn't, they didn't even cross-examine witnesses and didn't offer little to no defense. The trial presentation lasted two and a half hours. More than 1,000 whites crowded the courtroom, but no black people were allowed. This was typical for the time. Steiny was tried before an all-white jury. In 1944, most African Americans in the South were prohibited from voting and therefore ineligible to serve on juries. After deliberating for less than 10 minutes, the jury found Steiny guilty of both murders. The judge sentenced Steiny to death by electrocution. There was no transcript of the trial and no appeal was filed in Steiny's counsel. Steiny's family churches, the NAACP, all appealed to the governor for clemency, given the boy's age. Other urged the governor to let execute the execution proceed, which he did. Between the time of Steiny's arrest and his unfortunate execution, his parents were allowed to see him once after the trial.
when he was held at Columbia Penitentiary. They were under the threat of lynching and were not allowed to see him any other time. Steiny was executed on June 16, 1944, exactly at 7.30 p.m. He was prepared for execution execution, I'm sorry, by an electric chair using a Bible as a booster seat because Steiny was too small for the chair. He was then restrained by his arms, legs, and body to the chair. His father was allowed to approach the electric chair to say his final words to his son, and the officer asked George if he had any last words to say before the execution took place, but he only shook his head. The executioner pulled a strap from the chair and placed it over George's mouth, causing him to break into tears, and then placed the face mask over his face, which did not fit him as he continued sobbing. When the lethal electricity was applied, the mask covering slipped off, revealing tears streaming down Steiny's face. He was buried in an unmarked grave. A re-examination of the Steiny case began in 2004, and several individuals at the Northeastern University of Law School sought a judicial review. Steiny's conviction was overturned in 2014, 70 years later, after he was executed, when a court ruled that he had not in any way received a fair trial. There are so many people on death row, specifically black men, who don't receive fair trials. Wherever you stand, on the death penalty. Everyone has the right to a fair trial. And George Steiny is remembered as the youngest person in South Carolina to die by execution. with Joshua the Wordsmith. Our last Black history figure of the day is Miss Monica Roberts. Miss Monica Roberts lived a wonderful life. Monica Roberts was born and raised in segregated Houston, Texas. Her mother was a school teacher and her father was a DJ. Roberts graduated from Jones High School and the Houston Independent School District in 1980. In 1984, she graduated from the University of Houston. Roberts 
was working in Houston at an airline as a gate agent in 1993 to 1994, when she began her gender transition. She was a founding member of the National Transgender Advocacy Coalition, and she served as its lobbying chair from 1999 to 2002. Now, in Louisville, Kentucky, Robert served on the board of the Fairness Campaign and its Political Action Committee. In 2005 and 2006, she organized the Trans Sisters and Trans Brothers Conference that took place in that city. She began writing The Trans Grunt in 2004 as a newspaper column for the letter. A Louisville-based LGBT newspaper, the term Grunt refers to a storyteller from West Africa. Roberts founded the Trans Girl blog in 2006. She was motivated by the lack of trans blogs focused on black people and other people of color. One of the missions of her blog was to chronicle the history of black trans people. The blog allowed her to address community issues in a more timely manner and allowed greater control than the column after it was taken away due to conflicts with an advertiser over her greater control of writing. Through the trans growth, Robert also identified transgender homicide victims in order to tribute to the victims, many of whom were often misgendered in the police report and media coverage. Robert's coverage of transgender homicides is credited for bringing national attention to the issue. As a black trans woman, Roberts has explored the intersections of cis sexism and racism in her writing. In a 2009 column, she stated that people who have a problem with the word cisgender are wailing and an unacknowledged cisgender privilege and compared this criticism to white people that call me racist anytime I criticize the underlining structural assumptions that but rest white people. Now, Roberts died on October 5th, 2020. Her death was announced on October 8th, uh, 2020, in a Facebook post by her friend D.D. Waters. I mean, sorry, D.D. Waters. <clears throat> and was later confirmed by Harris County Medical Examiner and local media. Roberts' death was initially reported as a hit and run case though the medical examiner later stated that the cause of death was a medical emergency. Her mother and family reported that she was feeling unwell in the days prior to her death. The following week, the medical examiner reported the cause of death was complications by pulmonary embolism. Many LGBT activists, writers, and celebrities paid tribute to Roberts via social media following the announcement of her death, including Janet Mock and Human Rights Campaign President Alfonso David. In January of 2021, Dee Dee Waters, another Houston activist and friend of Roberts, announced plans for a publication named Transgroot to continue the work of Roberts had done to cover the black and trans issues on her blog of the same name.
I thank you guys so much for listening to the series this year. I'm going to bring this back next year. It's had such a positive um, and light and happy reaction amongst the community. I hope that you guys do your deeper research. Of course, this is just research that I've done, like, off of the bare minimum. I mean, I'm going to admit, like, a lot of Wikipedia helped me in my search um, for for persons of black history. And all I'm asking you guys to do is open your mind and, and, and actually do those Google searches. Um, look at the well-known people in black history, but also look at the Bayard Rustins and the um, George Steinies and um, the John P. Parkers and the Claudette Covens of history, because those people equally are a part of history. And I just want to give a shout out to just everyone who has liked and shared the information that I shared on Facebook. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, We will be back with this next year, you guys. Um, So, I guess there's nothing left to say, but thank you and um, peace and blessings. Stay black and protect your magic as uh, one of my favorite podcasters would say. But see you guys later.